From the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, we're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty, and all are welcome here. All are welcome, regardless of previous religion, ethnicity, race, sexual orientation, or abilities, or other circumstances. We come from a long tradition that sees a spark of the divine in each person. And it's in that spirit that I invite you to turn to your left and your right and greet the holy among us this morning. Please join me in saying our words for lighting our chalice, the symbol of our faith. They're printed in your order of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. These are the words of Reverend Marilyn Chicolte from the Public Sanctuary Movement and Historic Basis of Hope Oral Histories. Sanctuary was a loving and mutual relationship. It's much more than us giving to them. They gave to us a sense of what it means to be people of faith. Everybody predicted our churches were going to lose members over this. Our churches grew because people started coming back looking for a place where faithfulness meant something. Unitarian Universalism is a religion without creed. There's no set statement of beliefs onto which we all have to sign up. But we do have a set of principles that we affirm and promote along with our other Unitarian Universalists. And in this church, we have a set of shared values. Transcendence, community, compassion, courage, and transformation. And from those values, we draw a common purpose, a common mission. We wrote it on our wall, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Today's reading are the words of Reverend Robert McKenzie from the Public Sanctuary Movement, an historic basis of hope, oral histories. It was in every way a conversion experience. I mean, awakening me to the true issues of the gospel. I read the Bible very, I read the Bible very differently than I used to. I see the world very differently. I read the Bible and I see God's concern for the poor. That was the same purpose for which we were struggling in El Salvador, for justice and a better world, an equitable distribution of the world's goods and equitable opportunities for life in this world. And those are the controlling issues as I read scripture. I used to read other stuff, now I read this stuff. And I get impatient with speculation, with non-concrete filtration of ideas. I just don't have any time for that. It used to be very high on my agenda, you know, sort of the abstract theoretical reflection. Now, all of that means nothing much to me, and the concrete, hands-on dealing with people, entering their anguish, dealing with their poverty, with their hopes and their expectations, all of that now means everything as I read scripture, as I deal with the community of faith, as I engage myself with the world. Then also, the whole business of listening to people whose life experiences are so deep. It's just come to me that people who are struggling with life and death issues are people to be listened to. 
are people who have an uncommon wisdom, are people who ought to be setting the agenda. It's that kind of solidarity with the poor. I'm not here to minister to them. They minister to me. This is the time in our service where we take a moment to breathe together. Breathing in, breathing out, meditate or pray or just try to breathe into that spark of the divine within each of us, that place of greater wisdom that is sometimes beyond language. Breathing together, breathing in, breathing out. We know the paradox that each of us individually has that spark of the divine inside, and yet it is often breathing together within beloved community through which we are able to access it. Now breathing together, breathing in and breathing out, we enter a time of holy silence together. Ingrid and Omar, a young couple from El Salvador, came to the U.S. directly out of college. They decided to make the treacherous journey after witnessing several of their fellow students being gunned down in an attack on their campus over some student protests of which they had been a part. Omar remembers lying on the ground as the bullets whizzed overhead and the bodies of his friends fell all around him. Ingrid was pregnant. They knew they had to escape. Omar came first, traveling much of the way, strapped to the bottom of a pickup truck. Ingrid came later, seven months pregnant and hiding in the trunk of a car. They came with only a few pieces of clothing and Omar's violin. They came because their lives and the life of the new person that Ingrid was carrying with her were at stake. And despite the threat of persecution and even death in their country of origin, our government refused to grant them asylum and would have deported them had not St. John's Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California, offered them sanctuary. That was in 1982. A small number of churches were beginning to form what would become a much larger church sanctuary movement for Central American refugees fleeing human rights violations and even death squads in their home countries. And today, over 30 years later, we find ourselves in a situation that is eerily reminiscent of that time. And once again, a handful of churches, including this one, are offering sanctuary to refugees from many of these very same countries. Most of you know, last month we began providing sanctuary for Sulma Franco, a woman from Guatemala who had been a leader in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans- transgender rights activism in her country. 
She fled that country and fears going back because LGBT persons in Guatemala are routinely murdered or physically abused. And the Guatemalan government does nothing to protect them, implicitly supporting these abuses. And yet, like with Ingrid and Omar in the 1980s, our government has refused Soma's request for asylum. It has failed to offer her refuge So First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin has. And in doing so, we assumed the mantle of prophetic church along with a tradition and a set of responsibilities that goes with that. Now, We've been using that term prophetic a lot in the church lately, and I have to say that a few people have come up to me privately and said some version of, what does that mean? And I think that can happen because we get hung up with the word prophetic because many of us were taught that it meant to predict the future. And indeed, the biblical prophets in our Judeo-Christian tradition were described as conveying messages they had received about God about what the future might be like. And it was pretty often a terribly bleak future because the people and their leaders had been behaving quite badly and their God was preparing to throw a rather ill-tempered fit about it. But the ancient prophets, though, they were also offering a critique of the injustices they were witnessing, a vision of how their world could be made better. And it's that meaning of prophetic that we use today to describe a church that's bold enough to confront the injustices of its time, creating beloved community both in our midst and out in our world. Likewise, the church providing sanctuary as both a safe safe haven for victims of injustice and as prophetic witness against larger systems of injustice also goes all the way back to those ancient times. We stand in a long history and tradition regarding this meaning of prophetic church. In the ancient Israelite culture of the Hebrew Bible, their tabernacles and later the temples and even entire towns could serve as refuge for a person accused of a crime, particularly if what they had done had been an accident. You see, the laws of the time contained a system of retributive justice, what you've often heard described as a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, an arm for an arm, etc. Now, this system of retribution applied whether the offense was intentional or not. So, if you accidentally poked out your neighbor's eye while wagging your finger in their face because they had forgotten to recycle for instance, they could turn around and poke your your eye out for being so overly sanctimonious. Now, a bigger problem, though, was that the ancient Israelites were even more tribal and cliquish than we are now. So if my brother dropped his axe on your third cousin's foot and cut it off, then someone from your tribe could, tribe could cut off my brother's foot, but then I could take retribution by cutting off their foot, and pretty soon our tribes would be at battle hacking off body parts right and left like some old Monty Python sketch. And that didn't seem very just in the long run and was a real impediment to passing on the gene pool. So so the availability of sanctuary served to help interrupt this chain of events. 
Importantly, though, it also provided those wrongly accused of a crime a means to escape immediate and harsh retribution, as well as a refuge from which to critique the injustices of that time. During the early decades of Christianity, house churches sometimes provided a safe haven from oppression under the Roman Empire. In the Middle Ages, churches in England were actually legally recognized as temporary sanctuaries where people who, again, had been accused of wrongdoing could gain some time in order to be able to make their case of why they were innocent. Then during the Protestant Reformation, Reformed churches in the cities in which they were located, such as John Calvin's Geneva, sometimes provided refuge for Protestant exiles from the Catholic Church, though not always, as our Unitarian forebearer Michael Servetus found out when Calvin arranged for him to be burned at the stake, greatly irritating the Catholics who wanted to do it themselves. In U.S. churches... We provided sanctuary during the Underground Railroad for slaves fleeing the South to seek freedom. And later, churches were also sometimes shelters for women's rights and civil rights leaders. It was in the early 1970s, though, that our sanctuary movement in its current form really took root. Responding to the prolonged and casualty-heavy Vietnam War, peace activists and clergy in San Diego and Berkeley, California, started offering church sanctuary to soldiers who were home on leave and were agonizing over whether to go back to the war in Vietnam. And it was this combination of providing safe haven to people in desperate need and at the same time issuing a public declaration against unjust government policy and actions that became the foundation upon which the immigration sanctuary movement would then arise. As Eileen Purcell, an early activist in the sanctuary movement, puts it, what distinguished sanctuary was the educational and decision-making process that engaged entire faith communities and led to a corporate and public declaration of sanctuary. So then in the mid-70s, religious organizations like Church World Services, Catholic Charities, and Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services began assessing refugees escaping abuse in Chile and Argentina, and they did so with the support of the U.S. government. Unfortunately, though, in the 80s and the 90s, civil war, political turmoil broke out in places like Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, And our government was often involved in supporting, sometimes covertly, the forces that were inflicting wide-scale human rights abuses in these countries. And because of this, then our government refused to establish the legal framework regarding human rights conditions in those countries that would allow the refugees coming here to receive asylum. They instead argued that these people were coming for economic reasons. Sound familiar? So the church sanctuary movement for immigrants arose to, again, both provide much-needed support for folks like Ingrid and Omar and to shine a light on the injustices being perpetrated both here in the U.S. and in those Central American countries. People from across different denominations, classes, political parties, and races came together in this fight, and they were often both working to provide sanctuary for refugees here and traveling at their own risk to serve as witness in those Central American countries. 
our own Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, or UUSC, our congregations, our religious movement as a whole, were intensely involved in these efforts. We sent delegations to Central America, and the UUSC provided education and advocacy, as well as a study guide on how to become a sanctuary congregation. The government responded by infiltrating sanctuary churches with paid informants. One pastor recalls answering the door one morning to find someone who said they were there to repair the phone lines. And then a few minutes later, there was another knock at the door. He answered the door, and there was another person in a telephone company uniform saying they were there to repair the phone lines. It turned out both of them were government informants in disguise who had somehow gotten their wires crossed. Pardon the bad pun. Eventually, the government even charged a group of clergy and lay leaders in Texas and Tucson, Arizona, with a number of counts, including harboring and transporting illegal aliens. Even worse, in the Tucson trial, the government was able to block the defense from mentioning any condition of any, making any mention of the conditions in Central America, telling any of the stories of the refugees, talking about their religious convictions, mentioning any international treaties that would be applicable, and even mentioning our own law, the U.S. Refugee Act of 1980. The resultant kangaroo court, though, while obtaining some convictions, backfired against the government and in the court of public opinion. And those convicted received suspended sentences and very short periods of house arrest. So after that backfired on the government, there was a negotiated settlement and the government agreed to reopen previously denied asylum cases and to accept new applications from people who had been afraid to submit applications in the past. And then later, Congress passed legislation providing temporary protected status, which helped a lot more refugees be able to stay in the country and get a work permit so that they wouldn't be deported. Now today... A new sanctuary movement has arisen out of this history and tradition, responding to the needs of people fleeing some of these same countries and once again calling attention to our government's mistreatment of these refugees, as well as calling attention to our role in creating such terrible conditions in these countries to begin with, this time due mostly to our failed war on drugs and the activities of our multinational corporations in those countries. This sanctuary movement is the prophetic legacy into which First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin has stepped. And I think it's important that you know this legacy because your board of trustees will soon be engaging you, the congregation, in a discussion about whether we want to become a sanctuary church for the longer term. Our system of governance is called policy-based governance, and bear with me for a minute because I'm a governance geek, so I'm going to explain it to you. (laughs) Under our systems of governance, the board works with the congregation to establish our values, our mission statement, and our ends statements. The end statements are kind of the goals that we're going to pursue in order to live out our values and mission. Meg, then, as our senior minister, determines the means or what we will do and the ways that we will pursue those goals under a set of limitations that the board establishes, which tells Meg the things she may not do in pursuing those goals. Now, these are mainly things that are things like 
doing something illegal or unethical or just plain mean and unministerial-like. So when the question of sanctuary came up in this one case, doing so was a means of pursuing those goals. And it didn't seem to bump up against any of those limitations that I was just talking about. So Meg, in consultation with the board, decided to seize the prophetic moment and offer sanctuary to Sulma. By contrast, the larger decision about whether to become a sanctuary church beyond this individual case potentially involves a redefinition of our ends or at least a redistribution of our priorities within them. As such, Meg and the board believe it deserves a larger congregational discussion. In that discussion, you will need to consider the cost and risk associated with becoming a sanctuary church longer term. You've heard something about the potential risks today, and we've already experienced something of the potential cost in terms of resources and in terms of ministerial staff and volunteer time needed to support providing sanctuary. So too, though, will you consider the possibilities for transformation. Certainly, we we hope that providing sanctuary will be transformative for those that we invite among us. Suma has told me she feels a real sense of safety and protection here, as well as a renewed sense of hope, knowing that there is an entire community behind her. Our wish, of course, is also that publicly declaring ourselves a sanctuary church will contribute to changes in our immigration system and make us better about our role in the world. I hope, though, you will also consider the potential for transformation within this church itself. I've already sensed in the church a more tangible sense of common purpose, a renewed commitment and passion for our mission. And I'll close by letting you know that your response to welcoming Sulma among us has already made a big difference for me personally. Just before Sulma moved on campus, I was having a pretty tough time of it. As many of you know, my, my stepdad had died just a few months earlier, and then in the time since then, my spouse, Wayne, had been facing some pretty serious health challenges, and his insurance company was refusing to pay for a procedure that he badly needed. That's the evil of our still mostly for-profit health care system, but that's another sermon. Thank you. <laughs> I'll say it one more time. Evil. <laughs> And then I got a call that my mom was in the hospital also. Now, both Wayne and my mom are doing much better now, but I have to tell you that was a really low point in my life. I'm a humanist to the extent that I have an overall faith in the ultimate goodness of humanity. And I'm a theist to the extent that I normally have this sense of connection to something much larger than myself, and yet that I am a part of and that I hold a part of within me. At that point, though, I have to admit that I was losing that sense of faith in humanity. That connection to something larger than myself seemed far away and in danger of slipping completely out of reach. 
And then we put out an email announcement with a list of items we needed folks to donate in order to make a welcoming home for Sulma. We put that out, and then that evening I went to bed exhausted without even looking to see who might have responded. I got up the next morning to an email inbox that was so full I've never seen anything like it. People had offered to donate many, many times over every single item that we had asked for, and they had suggested and offered items that we hadn't even thought of. I had people emailing me and calling me saying, I don't have any of the stuff on that list, but let me know what you need, and I'll go out and buy it. And then we had to put out another message because we discovered we didn't have a bed for Sulma, and we put that email out, and within a few minutes, two email messages appeared in my inbox, one of them saying, we have a really nice queen mattress, but we don't have any box springs to go with it, and the other one saying, we have queen-size box springs, but we don't have a mattress to go with it. Now, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Unitarian, but I have to admit that something that I'm not allowed to call the Holy Spirit was moving through my email inbox about then. This church's outpouring of generosity and compassion renewed my faith and reconnected me with that wonderful and sustaining sense of being a part of something that is so much larger than myself. And I think that's what truly living out a shared mission can do for a religious community. I think that's the transformative potential of putting on that ancient mantle of prophetic church. Thank you. Not that I have much of an opinion one way or other about which I hope the discussions will go. Please say with me the words for extinguishing our chalice, which are in your order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. May you go forth today carrying with you a sense of awe and wonder that makes transcendence in our world seem possible. May you carry with you the sense of beloved community that we have here so that you can go out into your world and create more of it. May you give freely and receive freely compassion. May you know the courage to live honestly and vulnerably seeing the beauty in our world. May the possibilities for transformation be ever-present before you. May the congregation say amen Amen. and blessed be. be. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.